Welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson with you. Also, Bill Jack, Worldview Academy. And, Bill, we, we work in ministries that are very much cross-denominational. Right. And I, I call them interdenominational. Sure. And, Not non-denominational. They're and, interdenominational. And I have a fair amount of regular communion with other denominations in our valley here. And I've mentioned this a number of times, that uh, we have prayer meetings together across denominations, and we pray for revival in our county and have for about eight years. So we've had extraordinary unity between churches, between evangelical churches in this area. And today I want to talk a little bit about Pentecostalism and charismatics. Uh, This actually is important because Pentecostals make up 26% of all Christians worldwide. I believe that includes Catholics. So, uh, wow, really significant. And it turns out Christianity Today reports on this uh, just a year ago that only about 10% of U.S. missions agencies serving abroad were affiliated with the popular movement. So while 26% of the progress made in, uh, in Christian missions came about through Pentecostalism, only 10% of U.S. missions agencies are actually affiliated with the Charismatics and Pentecostals. What does that tell you? I think part of it tells you that there's a huge indigenous movement of Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, even what many call the non-denoms. Now, I would also add that the Charismatics and Pentecostals have influenced not just those within these particular denominations, but there's been an influence of these ideas Across denominations, you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. They they have influenced a lot of different denominations. They've kind of moved the dial, okay. In in many ways, the charismatic movement sprang out of high church. It came out of Catholicism, Episcopalians, Methodists, and then leapt over. So it's di- charismatic. The charismatic movement is different from a Pentecostal movement. I mean, they have similarities, but they're they're different in in many ways. And so Pentecostalism has been around for a long time. Charismatic movement since what the seventies. Make no mistake about it. Twenty five percent of two billion Christians in the world are Pentecostal or charismatic, according to I would say fairly accurate studies done and that means 500 million christians of the pentecostal or charismatic ilk and that just since the turn of the 20th century i'm thinking azusa street Mm -hmm. wouldn't you put it about there right um parham is one of the very first of the early pentecostals and he comes out of the holiness movements Mm -hmm. which are connected to the methodists and And the nazarenes and the nazarenes right uh so Friends, a quarter of the two billion Christians in the world, Pentecostal, charismatic. What does this mean? And I realize this introduces some controversy. And I I want to deal with this in this way. I'm working on a book called The Faith. And we talk about what we believe, what they believe, contrasting with other worldviews, as in, you know, the Hindu worldview, the Buddhist worldview, the humanist worldview. And uh, so what we believe, what they believe, and why they are wrong. So there's some apologetic elements here. But one of the things I want to do is I want to clarify the debate. And I think sometimes we talk past each other. We're miscommunicating because we're not defining our terms. That That's the first thing we need to do. Now, we may come to the point at which we are disagreeing, 
But before we get to the disagreement or the disagreement concerning the interpretation of the word of God as it applies to this subject or that subject, the first thing I think we need to do is define our terms. Yeah, what do you mean by what you're saying? Sure, exactly. And I think we get all upset sometimes on the front end. And we haven't even got to the point at which we're defining our terms yet. And as we define our terms, I think gradually the debate becomes more clear and the issues become more clear before us. And maybe all of us will become more biblical and more attached to biblical truth when it comes to this question. And so there are the continuationists like Wayne Grudem. Uh, They affirm a closed canon of scripture. So they do. And that's maybe not every continuationist, but generally speaking, you'll find continuationists like Wayne Grudem affirming the closed canon and the higher and ultimate authority of Scripture over any prophetic revelation. He holds to the position that prophecy in tongues is defined as a prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. That's how he explains tongues. He believes these are still carried on by members of the Christian church today, whereas teachers like Richard Gaffin, others hold that these gifts have ceased after the New Testament age. Now, it's interesting the Protestant Reformation yielded a wider range of beliefs in reference to the use of prophecy. So sometimes it's good to, I go to history often and I say, okay, what was the range of views in the early church? What was the range of views during the Reformation? I think this helps to keep us in the realm of sanity. You know, in the debate. So or we don't orthodoxy or orthodoxy yeah. or we don't strain at gnats and swallow camels and wind up stoning each other for every minor difference. So it's good to go back and say, OK, well, what did uh, the Protestant Reformation hold on issues like this? Well, now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I have my little rock pile right here. Yeah, I, was, I, I noticed that. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get you to ease yeah, off. Just yeah, take yeah. three steps back. <laughs> OK, I won't um, throw pebbles at you. All right. The Protestant Reformation yielded a wide range of beliefs in reference to the use of prophecy, not Not so much in the gift of tongues. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith stated that the former ways of God revealing himself being now ceased, but they did not specify those ways. John Calvin rejected any additional revelation that would, one, forge a new kind of doctrine, or two, lead us away from the received doctrine of the gospel. Instead, Calvin said, the Holy Spirit continues his work to seal our minds with that very doctrine which is commended by the gospel. Calvin considered the gift of prophecy to be subsumed under the gift of teaching, interpretation of scriptures rather than foretelling the future. The prophets mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, wrote Calvin, quote, were not those who were endowed with the gift of foretelling, but those who were blessed with the unique gift of dealing with scripture, not only by interpreting it, but also by the wisdom they allowed in making it meet the needs of the hour. So it was a foretelling. A foretelling, yeah. Rather than a That's exactly right. And it had immediate application to a particular situation. Martin Luther set aside foretelling as unnecessary in the present gospel age, while the more general gift of prophecy he considered an extraordinary and powerful gift of preaching to rightly explain the scriptures and thus powerfully prove the doctrines of the faith and overturn false teaching, encouraging the people, reproving, strengthening, and comforting by informing them of future wrath, punishment, vengeance for those who are unbelieving and unlistening. And on the other hand, the divine help and reward to be given to those who believe and are pious. Now, the Puritans, like Richard Baxter or Increase Mather, wrote of contemporary prophecies telling of future events, which very well could be, quote, of God. Okay, so there were some Puritans who saw this to include the foretelling of future events. You find that with Increase Mather in America, Richard 
uh, Baxter out in England. The Prince of Puritans, John Owen, held that, quote, some gifts analogous to these miraculous gifts of the Spirit continue in the contemporary church. Samuel Rutherford wrote that these extraordinary prophets of the New Testament age and our ordinary prophets and pastors differ not in species and nature. So you see, there's a bit of a variety. There's, there's a, a latitude. standard deviation, so to speak. Yeah, there's a latitude. Perspectives on things like prophecy among the reformers and the Puritans. And I think this is helpful. Now, I, I don't want to get into much detail, get into polemics here, but I do think it's important that, one, we understand the range of beliefs. We get a firm grasp on the more egregious mistakes that can be made and strive hard to maintain unity uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy. So a couple things. Number one, the very first thing that I think we all need to agree on is that the authority of Scripture is beyond contest for a Christian orthodoxy and the canon is closed. Okay, we're not adding first Kevin or second Jack or third Bill. Well, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Those who surrender scriptural authority have left the faith. So, so let's start with that. But number two, Jesus Christ and the apostles, as you read the New Testament, as this, the final revelation of God's inscripturated word, they still relied heavily on Old Testament revelation in their teachings. Their example should further encourage the utmost reverence for and constant reliance upon revealed scripture among followers of Christ 2,000 years later. With a lot of contemporary folks, there appears this fixation on personal opinions, personal experiences, miracles, dreams, purported additional revelations, and so on, without a more fundamental reliance upon Scripture right. and a continual reference to Scripture in the preaching. So it's, it's experience trumps revelation. In the liturgy, in the way they yeah, do it. Right. Okay, I've attended some churches. I'm not going to give names to these churches, but I've noticed there was no exegesis, no scripture read, like none, right. no teaching from the word of God on a Sunday morning, like mm -hmm. none. Why? Because we had to go through all the revelations and dreams and miracles. Right. We just had to keep going through lists. And most of them were just relating things that had happened 10, 15 years ago. They've been relating these things for the last 10 years. And they're just relating the same thing over and over again, with maybe adding a new one in on occasion. So again, that to me is an indication that we have surrendered authority, the authority of God's word. Why? Because we don't habitually go back to it and build our lives upon it. And that to me is an obvious indication that uh, there has been an abandonment of the epistemological authority of God's word speaking. Thirdly, here's one more thing. The use of an unknown tongue within the early church, far more debatable, given the lack of clarity and consensus on the practice among the church fathers. So if the church fathers lack clarity and consensus, what about us? 1,600 years later. We should not elevate it I to a position. I think we should be somewhat cautious, yeah. Yeah, we should not elevate it to a position sure. of doctrine sure. that trumps other. Sure, doctrine. I would say it'd be somewhat dubitable. Yeah. If, if it was dubitable for them, it's going to be somewhat dubitable for us, even more so. As to what it was, what what was this tongue thing? Uh, John Chrysostom on the eastern side, he considered the Corinthian church's practice the gift has ceased, but he said uh, we're ignorant of the facts concerning the gift itself, and that's in the four hundreds, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, the three hundreds, about three sixty. Okay, so we're talking, you know, just three hundred twenty years after this Corinthian phenomenon occurred, John Chrysostom doesn't know what happened. And uh, also, if you look at Augustine, Augustine took issue with tongues speaking among the Donatists, who apparently took up the continuationist perspective at that time. And he says the gospel is now accessible in multiple languages already. 
So we don't really need it anymore. That's the way he looked at it. Origin. Now we're looking at origin like 280. So we're, we're moving back quite a ways. Origin from Alexandria. Uh, he considered the gift as the ability to speak in a foreign language. Okay. And so this is pretty common throughout the early church fathers. Uh, also, if you look at Tertullian, he suggested the gift uh, might actually continue. And this would have been around the 200s or 180s, 190s, 200s. Uh, Tertullian suggests the gift might have some continuance, but again, these guys considered to be probably a foreign language of some sort. Uh, the church fathers were far less likely to concede to the secession of the gifts of prophecy and miracles. Uh, Augustine references a blind man who was miraculously healed somewhere in Milan, as well as he says numerous other miracles. So the early church fathers acknowledged miracles, no question. Right, but um, it was it was not as common as it was not a gift that was commanded. Uh, by the like the apostles commanded it, yeah. And even later on in their lives, that that gift diminished to the to the point where it was not prominent. Yeah, and and now let's look at uh, prophecy for just a moment. The word prophecy in classical Greek usage, New Testament context, is seen as an authoritative speaking of the divine word, much like preaching. And and I would say a, a high percentage. Of church fathers, reformers, et cetera, throughout history would say, yeah, it's speaking the divine word. While it's true, the word may include foretelling the future. Seldom is the word used for that purpose. There's no sense that this is a use described in 1 Corinthians 14, where the unbeliever is convicted by God's truth, senses God's presence accompanying the word itself. Neither is there a sense that this prophesied word is anything additional to that which is already given by the apostles. So we see in 1 Corinthians 14, the unbeliever comes in, he's convicted by the secrets of his heart, made manifest, falls down, he's judged of all, he's convinced of all, and he worships God and reports that God is in you of a truth. Uh, the purpose of prophecy given in verse 3 is for edification, exhortation, consolation, comfort. This can't be referring to a more narrow subject matter as future telling. Those who exercise the prophetic gift in 1 Corinthians 14 were therefore engaging a Holy Spirit-anointed function in which the Word convicts, drills into the heart, makes intensely relevant application to the heart of the specific individuals present, whether that be one person, tens persons, or a hundred persons gathered. The purpose, conviction, comfort, faith strengthening, inducement to worship. There's no reason why the gift cannot be exercised in the contemporary setting without compromising the authority of the canonized word, I believe. You know, if you look at specifically what 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, there's there's no reason why this can't be done. Right. And it can't be considered a gift in the modern age. Number five, nomenclature is important. Now, let's talk about nomenclature for a moment. There are sloppy cliches that people use, like the Lord told me. The Lord told me can be dangerous in that we place our own insights on the level of apostolic revelation in the minds of those taking part in the conversation. In other words, it doesn't give us an opportunity to gradate or add gradation to the authority that's blurred with the familiar cliche used a hundred times a day in a lot of church settings. Testifying to having heard audible communication from God and then communicating the truth proposition to others presumes an authority equated to scriptural revelation. Let's be watchful there. There's a very real and present temptation to equate the truth value and the authority value of the immediate wisdom received to scriptural authority in our minds. There's interesting also in the 17th century, John Bunyan, who's the author of Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most popular Puritan writers of the day. Um, he, in his conversion story, uh, which by the way, we use as part of our uh, curriculum, 
Uh, he tells of the voices of the devil and the voice of God. Yet Bunyan is always careful to qualify his testimony with words like, I thought I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. God seemed to be saying to me, another good word came to me. The Lord gave me this precious word. And, and almost without exception, he includes a Bible verse in what he received. So, you know, you, you see that godly people have used some language, like, you know, something was given to me, communicated in some way, but not in the sense that it it's, came by the voice of God, most is, certainly. And is equal with Scripture. And is equal with Scripture, right? right? So they're always careful to do that. We see that with John John Bunyan. Now, audible communications occurred actually rather rarely in the history of biblical revelation, it turns out. God the Father spoke at the baptism of Christ. While the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. The Lord God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, etc. Other instances more debatable, but it's striking how seldom the audible voice of God was heard in the history of divine revelation. And so if someone comes up to you and they've heard the voice of God like every 10 seconds, you know, every 10 minutes or every 10 days, you, what would you think? You're like, okay, there were four of those throughout Old and New Testaments. And then you, there's you would, a, you would probably go, there's something wrong with this. Yeah. And there, there's the test. And that is, if the words of a prophet do not come true, the Old Testament yeah. says you do what? You stone them. Yeah. They have to be 100% accurate. Given that they've said, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. If they've said that, if and they I say, haven't qualified it, yeah. they're, they're claiming something equal to a scriptural authority. Yeah. That's why you have to be so cautious with that's your language. I, that's why I say, well, in my opinion, is a whole different thing than my saying, thus saith the Lord. Now, let's move on. Knowledge and wisdom may be received by what I call God's providential nudges through general revelation, dreams, internal cogitations, other means. Applying the classic categories of revelation treated um, in our study, uh, there's form of communication may be classified as general revelation. But to say that God in the three persons does not communicate as defined as sharing ideas or information with another person, distances God from his creation and denies his sovereign operations over brain activity. Moreover, relationship requires communication. Does this general form of revelation imply the communication is less than intentionally personal? That seems to be the thrust of the concern retained by many continuationists. If communications between the Holy Spirit and an individual may never be classified as intentional, individual, personal, cognitive, how might that affect our conception of a personal relationship with God? As in Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.21. The question then to consider is this. By what means does this communication come about? How is insight received by some of the most outstanding inventors in history, for example? How do these discoveries come about? How does one receive multiple premonitions about future eventualities that do turn out to be accurate? An extensive review of history of highly significant scientific breakthroughs would yield one conclusion. God has provided special insight to Christian inventors and scientists, especially opening up avenues of thinking and breakthroughs in understanding heretofore inaccessible to mankind. I interviewed Raymond Domitian, the inventor of the MRI machine, and, and he indicated that there was no other explanation for it, that he, he reached a breakthrough that he could not explain any other way and uh, almost received a Nobel Prize for it. Um, yet the truth value, now this is very important, the truth value and the authority with which the revelation comes can never be taken at the same level as the revealed word contained in the 66 books. Because of the intensely personal nature of certain premonitions or dreams, these can speak loudly. In the providence of God, a dream may have a tremendous edifying value and direct us to more faith or more relevant application of Scripture, more prayer. Scripture must still speak louder. And this is the whole point. 
It has to do with your heart. Where is the epistemological authority? It must come from the Word of God. The problem is still found with the human mind. Now, the varying inputs that come into it, all of which contain varying levels of truthfulness, a mixture of truth and error in the providence of God. See, I still believe that in providence of God, he's in control of every brainwave in my head. Assuming that God is sovereign over each input, he'll be sure of the degree of clarity of mind and the clarity and truthfulness of inputs coming into the mind. The throne room of God and the purposes of God very clearly permitted deceiving spirits to provide King Ahab with the wrong premonitions of what would happen in the battle that would end his life. You remember this. God's sovereignty over the false conceptions conveyed to Ahab is impossible to ignore in this reference from 2 Chronicles 18. Quote, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these thy prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil against thee. That some premonitions or predictions in the minds of some persons turn out to be more accurate than others is still under the sovereign hand of God, well within the purposes of God. How could John Knox, the reformer, the Presbyterian, have declared he would preach at St. Andrews while slaving away in the galley ship? How could he have predicted the death of Kirkcaldy of Grange or the death of Thomas Maitland, whom he said would die when there shall be none to lament him? And sure enough, the man died an ignoble death in Italy where none would attend his funeral, as reported by his sister later. So how could these happen? Knox's biography, uh, Thomas McCree, admitted it cannot be denied that Knox's contemporaries considered these as proceeding from a prophetic spirit and have attested that they received an exact accomplishment. McCree warned that no one should limit the operations of divine providence, so he acknowledges divine providence in this. At the same time, then, he would caution against ascribing too much authority to these predictions. Here's what he said. The canon of our faith as Christians is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We must not look to impressions or new revelations as a rule of our duty, but that God may, on some occasions, forewarn persons of some things that might happen, to testify his approbation of them, to encourage them to confide in him in circumstances in peculiar difficulty or to serve other important purposes is not, I think, inconsistent with the principles of either natural or revealed religion. The all this is me now, the all comprehensive heart disposition of every godly man or woman is submission to the will of God, always testifying if the Lord wills, we shall live, do this or do that. Some may have a stronger sense of the will of God in showing mercy or bringing judgment either way. Perhaps what we thought would happen or what we thought we could make happen did not happen in the end because all happens according to the infallible will of God. Yet it would seem inappropriate to declare a prediction or premonition as the very word of God. For all the reasons already stated, the degree to which insight is tainted by the wrong inputs, demonic suggestions, finite intelligence, and inability to know all the present facts, the inability to extrapolate those facts into the future, are lend to uncertainty for all human predictions and premonitions. Thus, it would seem best to couch predictions in humble qualifications, broader statements, biblical principle, statistical probabilities, language like, it's highly probable or possible that this or that might happen is much safer than to claim ultimate certainty uh, for some kind of prediction. To declare 100 predictions as the very word of God to end up with a 10% accuracy rate would turn out to be a cruel disappointment. Those receiving the prophecies would either conclude that God's word is not to be trusted or that this is a false prophet. Of all the statements the prophet could make in his daily routine at home, at work, at recreation, etc., surely his acquaintances would testify some degree of inaccuracy in his communications, whether predictive or not. Surely his own wife could verify for us that the man is not the compendium of all truth. You know, so nobody bats a thousand with this. So there is, it is true that God gives us certain insights, but the problem is we don't know which come from God as absolute truth and that which would not, 
And the only certainty we have of absolute truth is going to be in the revealed revelation of the 66 books. So these are the sorts of qualifications, Bill, I would throw into the mix before we get into debates. You see, we have to debate. We have to define our terms first. And and once we're through with all of these qualifications, then we need to step back and say, okay, what was it that we disagreed on? And then, then you can ask the question, how do you know that what you believe is true? If we start with God's word first as the yardstick, then you have a standard by which you can judge what you're talking about. And everything else is in the realm of probabilities. Yeah. Ergo, 42% sure. <laughs> 68% sure. <laughs> batting about 10% on that. All right. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast, friends. I hope that's been helpful just to open up a conversation. I guess that's my, my goal. We need to open up conversations about these things, define our terms, and not rush to disagreement. And be sure, as Bill mentioned, bring the Word of God to bear in the discussion as the source of our truth, our ultimate authority. This is Kevin Swanson. And Bill Jack inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.